All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am Josh Patterson, and with me today is a super cool guest uh, that I know a lot of you have been excited about, and that is Jared Bias. Jared, how's it going, man? It's going pretty well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, taking some time to come and hang out. I know it's probably good to get away from Pete every once in a while. <laughs> every once in a while, yeah. Yeah, not, yeah. not too much, though. Yeah, right on. Have have some time to, to hang out with some other people. <laughs> cool. Well, Jared, before uh, we jump in, we do have a question that we like to ask all of our guests that come on the show. Um, it's, a, it's a question that means a lot to us, especially right now. So here it is. Who is your favorite ice hockey team? Ice hockey team? Yeah. Well, I got to say the, I gotta say the Flyers, of course. Um, but with the disclaimer that I know nothing about ice hockey. <laughs> right on. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. So and uh I don't know if you, you follow it all then, but they just got uh poo pooed on the other night and uh, got eliminated from the playoffs. But, I did not uh, know that. Yeah, so they're they're done. Uh they were pretty good this year. And uh, I have a bunch of friends. I went to school in uh in PA, so I have a bunch of friends who are Flyers fans. So Okay. Yeah, I have, yeah. I have some grace for you, but uh, yeah. Well, the 76ers got beat for nothing in the playoffs, so it's not been a good year for uh, Philadelphia teams in the playoffs. But hey, at least they yeah. made it to the playoffs. That's true. That's a plus. Yeah. yeah. What what they say? Trust the process. That's right. Trust the process. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. All right, man. Well, um, before so like we we have a, a topic today we're going to talk about actually uh, your latest book. But before we do that, can you just fill in some people who maybe. Uh, don't know much about you. Like, who are you? Uh, what do you do? Maybe a little bit about your your faith upbringing. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would have grown up in a small town in Texas, would have grown up Southern Baptist primarily, and uh, with a, a dash of charismatic, uh, you know, charismatic uh, tradition as well. And then <clears throat> went to Liberty and ended up at Westminster Seminary um, and was a pastor for a while. I was a professor for a while. And now apparently I like occupations that start with the letter P. Um, now I'm podcast, uh, podcast host, uh, at the Bible for normal people with Pete ends another P I never realized all the P's in my life. <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right, man. Well, um, yeah. The, and the Bible for normal people is a fantastic podcast. I love it. I share it all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. So thanks for, thanks again for hanging out. But, uh, 
Yeah, so today what we're going to do is uh, we're going to talk about your most recent book, Love Matters More, which I don't know when this episode is going to release, but from today, the book comes out tomorrow. Right. That's that's exciting. And um, yeah, so, but before we jump into your book, I have a confession that I need to make publicly. Um, I found out today some bad news, uh, and that that bad news is, is I found out that I'm a heretic. Um, Yeah, some... Somebody called me that online and... Uh, well, it had to be true then. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> so specifically because, and here, here's the secret, or maybe it's not so much a secret, uh, I kind of like open theism. And so they mm-hmm. called me a heretic. Um, and that before, you know, would make me very upset. But now I've realized that love matters more. And so it's okay. <laughs> That's right. That's Not a right. heretic. Yeah. Sweet. All right, man. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in then. So this book, Love Matters More, uh, why did you write it? And, and who is this book for? Well, yeah, I mean, I wrote it because this would be a, a journey that I've been on um, for my whole life. If, you know, I grew up in a system that privileged really my kind of personality, which is one that was intellectual. It was about getting things right. It was about understanding your theology. And if you could put all the pieces together in the best way, you got to be a leader, you got to be in charge, you were the authority. Um, and so that was really a privileging of, of thinking of beliefs as a mental exercise rather than beliefs as uh, an emotional, relational, psychological, and really existential reality. And so, you know, this book for me, uh, was written so that I could kind of process the journey I went on about love mattering more, which I always said with my mouth, but didn't practice really in my beliefs for a long time. And so this book really is for, my hope is, it's for people who have had that inclination, have had that intuition, that, or maybe that's how they're built, to be more uh, ab- about the love of the Christian faith and not as much about the theology or the heady things or have to read all these books and have to be really smart to be a quote good Christian. And I hope this book is a little bit permission giving for people to say, hey, you know what, there is something here that's valid about my faith and how I practice it. And that, in fact, it may be uh, more central to what Jesus was about than maybe the way I practiced it. Yeah, that that's really good. And that, I mean, for me personally, that, that resonates a lot because that's kind of been my own uh, personal journey as well. At first, um, I used to say this thing when I was young and dumb. Well, I, I, I probably still am dumb, but I'm a little bit older now. Uh, I used to say, I remember someone would tell me, hey, you should, you should learn about theology. And I was like, I don't need theology. I have Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I started reading theology and then I went to the opposite extreme. Um, where I did try to do exactly that. I tried to figure out what, what are the exact right truths, the exact right pieces? How can I have this you know, intellectually robust faith? But then what I realized was um, you can have it up here in your mind. I'm pointing to my head listeners. Uh, but if it doesn't move into your heart or into practice, it doesn't matter. Um, right. And so that the, the journey you mapped out really uh, kind of spoke, spoke to me well. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what that is, um, and you, you, you talk about this, is that it seems that we kind of have like an addiction uh, to certainty um, and truth. Why, why do you think that might be? Well, I mean, it is sort of the water we swim in. So whether we like it or not, we all grew up in what we would say is the post-enlightenment era. So, you know, for the last 500 years, we've been in a tradition and a culture that would have highlighted 
this idea of, uh, well, the belief really that if we use reason well enough, we can come to some sort of utopia in our politics, in our society, that at the end of the day, if we can, you know, we can come to all come to agreement if we would all just be reasonable. And so reason was put at the top of the virtues of, of that was sort of the pinnacle of how to be a good citizen was to be reasonable. And, and so that was this privileging of intellect. So in a lot of ways, we come by it honestly, I think, um, in terms of why we, why we maybe are addicted to truth and certainty. But then I think there's a psychological component, too, where it feels really good. I mean, I like to be in control. And, you know, uh, as Francis Bacon and many others said, knowledge is power. So the more we know, the more we feel in control. And to not feel in control is a scary thing. And so I think it's a, a basic human drive, maybe, to feel secure and safe. And knowledge is, is an avenue for that. But it can be easily weaponized um, and actually keep us from things like faith, which I, I would say is completely opposed to certainty. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I used, I mean, I used to think and, and be taught growing up that uh, doubt was like the opposite of faith. Like if you have doubts, then it doesn't count. Um, but now more so, I think uh, faith and doubt are, are perhaps two sides of the same coin, um, mm-hmm. or rather they go together, you know, being able to hold paradox and uncertainty, um, I think is a much healthier way to, to live and go about things. Um, if you can get there, which it, it takes time because it is scary. Uh, but but something that I thought was was really interesting, um, you alluded to a metaphor in your book that uh, a lot of people probably are familiar with the idea, you know, the story goes like there's a, a big elephant in a room and then there's like, you know, a few blind guys in there and, you know, oh, this is a trunk or, you know, whatever. So they're touching the different parts and none of them really have the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of like pushed that uh, metaphor a little bit further and I thought it was really helpful and I think that'll help frame our, you know, conversation. Can you uh, share some of that? Yeah, I mean, it's just the, it really is, if you know the, if you're familiar with the story, um, again, yeah, there's an elephant and all these blind uh, men are feeling different parts of it and they're coming to their own conclusions. So one reaches for the tail and says, oh, this is a, a rope. And one feels the side of the elephant and says, no, it's a wall. And another one maybe feels the leg and says, no, it's a tree. This is the tree trunk. And of course, the, the, the punchline of the story of the parable is we need to be humble because maybe we're only seeing one side of it. But we are also assuming that we know it's an elephant. So the punchline depends on us actually having the God's eye view of the whole thing. So I appreciate the import of humility, but what if we, no one knows it's an elephant? That takes it to a whole different level of where we really have to be we can't be in the privileged position. We don't have the God's eye view to even say, oh yeah, we need to be humble because, but at the end of the day, I know it really is an elephant. What if we only know that it's a rope? What if our experience is the only thing we have is this experience of a rope? And yet there may be something beyond that. And so there is a deep humility, I think, which is why I started the book with it, because I don't know if you can go on this journey without having that prerequisite of that deep humility. Yeah, and that um, that level of humility is something uh, that kind of once uh, that was shown to me and, and kind of was cracked open, uh, this idea of limited perspective basically uh, was a big game changer for me, um, especially because then I, I started to realize too, like the importance of, uh, you know, so prefaced, I grew up in a tradition where like, you know, you can't read women, 
um, like don't read like liberation theology because that's all heresy, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I realized that all the, all the books and stuff that I was supposed to be reading were like these dead white guys. And, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was like, and, and then it, it, it dawned on me like, wait a minute, that's just one perspective here. And so it, the importance um, of realizing like, okay, this is one limited perspective. It's based on so many things like my uh, life growing up, the culture I live in, uh, my experiences, even the difference between me like living out here in the country or living in the city, all of those things impact our understanding of things. And then um, it, it was super helpful then to see, okay, well, there's different people with different perspectives. So probably we should listen to them too. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I like saying, you know, all theology has an adjective. And I think mm. that's really important because when you're in academia, you know, growing up when I was going to uh, seminary and even in undergrad, if you wanted to read, like you said, liberation theology, it was liberation theology. Or if you wanted to read African-American theology, you read African-American, the, the adjective was always there. But whenever we read Karl Barth or whenever we read, uh, you know, any of the other guys in my undergrad, we didn't call it white theology. We didn't call it man, men theology, but there's feminist theology. And so it, there's this disconnect we have to recognize all theology has an adjective. It's not that we need to call African-American theology just theology. It's that we need to call white theology, white theology. We need to mm-hmm. add the adjective because it gives that perspectivalism. Yeah, that's super helpful. That, and that's, <laughs> I mean, that's so true. Even, even in my experience that like being at a school that tried to pride itself on diversity, which really means, um, man, I'm going to take a shot across the bow. They find like the few diverse students on, on campus and take pictures of them and then put them on everything. <laughs> I used to joke with my roommate because he's Asian. His picture was everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, even at a school that prided itself on diversity, that was, it was the same thing. You had theology one, two, and three, and then you had, you know, black theology, liberation, whatever. Um, so that's, that's interesting. But uh, to kind of get us away from that so I don't piss off too many people, um, <laughs> I think uh, another important distinction uh, that you make in your book that was super helpful is uh, a lot of times this word truth is thrown around and we've already been doing that today. Uh, but truth is a slippery word. Um, and you kind of talk about three different uh, kinds of truth uh, being fact, meaning and wisdom. Can we uh, go there for a little bit? Yeah, yeah, and I think it is helpful. And again, for me, the the whole reason to make this distinction is so we can better understand each other. That's really my heart, is I want us to have good, productive dialogue. And I feel like we often are like ships passing in the night. We're not realizing we're using the same word, but we mean something different. And so we have to actually, you know, that's that philosophy in me is like, let's define our terms first so that we can actually make sure we're understanding each other. Because you know, the classic example of this would be when someone's reading the Bible and we come across maybe like a book like Jonah and we say, well, is the book of Jonah true? There are multiple people who would say, yes, it's absolutely true. And some people say, yes, that means it historically happened. It's a historically accurate account. And others may say, no, it's true in the sense that it resonates with me about what it means to be human. It, it's so true about the human experience. Hmm. And then uh, we have to make sure that we're realizing those are those can both be right and accurate ways of using the word truth. Um, but we have to make sure we know what we're talking about. So we talk about facts, and I like to talk about facts as as what would be true if everyone were dead. 
<laughs> so if sure. you took all humanity out of it and this sort of the natural sciences without the observation of humans, what would still be there? So science is this process of trying to get the human element out of our observations so that we can see things as they really are. Mm-hmm. And that's an important, uh, an important endeavor. It's really important, but it's not the only endeavor. And it's not, maybe we would say as humans, maybe not even the most important endeavor. We have to balance that with meaning. And we are in this unique position of consciousness where we experience ourselves in life. And so we have this thing called meaning, where we make meaning out of it. And for meaning to happen, you have to have human beings. There is no meaning without human beings. It's a, it's a human-centric endeavor. Um, and so it's a relational term. It's what did this mean? So while the facts give us, the facts don't mean anything. The facts are just facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have to make them mean something. Um, and so we have facts, we have meaning. But I really wanted to end with this idea of wisdom because this is a trickier one because it's not in our heads, right? It's different. Where facts and meaning are this cognitive exercise in our brains, wisdom is truth lived out. Mm. It is truth as uh, it is truth as we say it's true as an arrow. Um, I want to live truth, um, or as John says in our Bible, that we want to walk in truth. Mm-hmm. How do you walk in? something that's our head? How do you have this physical expression? And that's wisdom. Mm. Yeah, that, that's good. I think um, an analogy that, that was uh, once uh, given to me uh, by a friend of mine named Bruxy. Uh, Bruxy Cavey, he's a, a pastor up in Canada at the Meeting House, if, if you've heard of them before. Um, but when he was talking about this uh, and just you know building up information in our head, he was basically describing it as like somebody... Uh, who um, just sits down and consumes food all day. Like you can keep eating and keep eating and keep eating and keep eating, but then what happens is you'll just get really big and then you're unable to move. And so wisdom is knowing <laughs> how to walk that out so that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah, and so I thought, I thought that was helpful. But also too, I think like uh, the way that I've you know, been trying to, to apply it um, – you know, personally is, so if you like, you know, crack open your Bible and you read something, you can say, okay, what does it say? So there, there's like the fact, like, what does the text actually say? Fact. Okay. Now what does it mean? So that's, I, I guess, interpretation. And then, okay, now what do I do with this? How do I live it out? Which is, I think the, the wisdom bit. Is mm-hmm. that, does that seem about right? Yeah. The, the only, the only distinction I might make not to get too nerdy here is. <laughs> sure. If you're just going to talk about the facts of what it says, you can do nothing but read it. Sure. That's all you're saying. This is what it says. Once you say anything other than what's the words on the page, anything, you're into meaning. Yeah. Um, And so I, I like to think of there's also these facts of what did the author intend to mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is something. There is something out there that the author intended to mean. That can be a fact as well. But meaning doesn't depend on just what the author intended to mean. Meaning requires a reader when we're talking about text. Mm-hmm. So I can't determine what it means in the present tense without understanding who the reader is, not just who the author is. Yeah. And I think that's important because, you know, I grew up in a context where we, th- we thought we were trying to get back to what the author intended. And that's the most important thing. And I think it is in a history. If I'm a historian, that's what I'm after. I'm mm-hmm. trying to uncover what did this originally mean in the, in the old days when it was first written. But for me, as, a, as if we're in a religious community, 
we actually have to ask, what does it mean now, today, for us? And that requires, uh, what I might say is, it, this phrase might turn people off if you're in academia, a reader response uh, approach. So for me, meaning is always two sides of a coin. It's always a relational term. Mm-hmm. So we can't just focus on what the author intended to get what it means. That tells us what it meant, but it doesn't tell us what it means. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And that's, it's just also, it's, it's being honest uh, with yourself and also with others. Um, I think it could, it could do the, the, the world, the church, a a whole uh, great deal of help. If um, a pastor on Sunday morning was more willing to get up and say, here is my interpretation of this right? versus here's exactly what this is supposed to, you know, to be. And I think that's a disrespect to say Paul or Jesus or other people where we co-opt them into Mm -hmm. our own no what jesus really meant here was x y and z and really we're just trying to we're trying to make it feel like we're being faithful to jesus or to paul when maybe we should just say you know here's what paul originally meant now how might that apply to us how do we what does it mean for us today let paul be paul let's not disrespect paul and i find that it's interesting in our attempt to respect Paul, I feel we disrespect Paul because <laughs> we, we shape Paul into our own image. Mm. And because of our own fear of going astray or we think that to be faithful is to only honor the original context. Well, the original context didn't have social media and our addiction to our phones and depression and mental health challenges in the same way we have them today. Um, and so if we're going to apply them, we have to move beyond Paul. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like uh, this idea of, I've heard uh, you and Pete talk about this before uh, on Bible for Normal People. Um, almost the idea is, is the Bible is like a, um, like an on-ramp, like a, like a jumping off point, a, 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 like, yeah, a jumping off point. And even within your book, you use um, a really helpful analogy. Uh, I thought it to be super helpful uh, about like reading the Bible, like being a chef. Like mm-hmm. I thought that was so helpful. Um, yeah, can you can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, I, I just likened it to, you know, figuring out as a chef, um, you have your basic ingredients, but there's so many different ways you can put them together. And I think that's a really helpful way of, you know, a lot of us think that the, the thing we should do is just cook the same thing over and over and over and over um, instead of being creative with our interpretation. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, and I think too, like um, even the the understanding of the, the, I'm going to screw it up, but the, the parable where the dude's like, here's, you know, um, tenants or whatever. And then some, you know, one guy goes out and like get stuff with them. And then the other one just kind of hides it and doesn't use it. You likened it to that as well. And I thought that was super interesting um, and very helpful. And also too, like this one thing that, that always would come up uh, when I would talk to friends who, who think differently than me, um, especially when it comes to things like, I mean, exactly what we're talking about, they would be like, well, Jesus treated scripture as if it was X. And then it seems like no one agrees on what that means, how Jesus treated scripture, <laughs> right? Like, and, and you talk about that in, in your book some, but like, it's just, it's always so interesting because I find that like, Jesus treats scripture the way that our system works. (laughs) You know, like if we're being honest, we have our systematic theologies or whatever. And that just so happens to be that Jesus viewed scripture the same way that, that we do. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, and, and that's where, I think that's where we can get into trouble if we aren't respecting biblical scholarship, because that's mm. really the realm there. And I think the, this is my opinion, the reason we don't, our challenge with the way Jesus handled the text is he doesn't handle the text in a way that we think is a good way to handle a text. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he takes things out of context. He pulls them to mean, he sort of makes them about himself. He doesn't respect the original context. Um, we see Matthew doing this. I mean, what we have to realize is the way that the New Testament handles its texts is the way that the Second Temple period in that time and place handled texts. Mm-hmm. We don't like it because it's not the historical critical method. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't have the advantage of the last few hundred years of critical scholarship, but we want that to be the case. And so no wonder, since we're, we're sort of ripping Jesus out of his original context, he's just floating there waiting for another context. And, oh, it just happens to be my context because I like to think that Jesus is on my side. Um, so we put a sort of implant Jesus there because I think the reality is uncomfortable that, you know, Paul and Jesus and the writers of the New Testament they don't handle the Bible the way we wish they would. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, and um, this is on topic, but not necessarily on topic with uh, with your book, but this is something that um, I've been thinking about just personally recently. With taking, something like taking scripture seriously, we have uh, what's called the Septuagint. For listeners who don't know, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, and when it's translated, it's also interpreted. So there are differences. Um, and then if I, I mean, I'm no New Testament scholar, but if I'm correct, the Septuagint is quoted often in, in our New Testament, right? And so if, if the authors are quoting the New Testament, they're the Septuagint, which is an interpretation and translation of the Old Testament in Hebrew, I, like, I don't see how inerrancy, like that language can be a thing. Because <laughs> it's, it's like, you see what I'm saying? It's different because it's, it's already like this conversational piece. Like people are already uh, interacting with the Old Testament in a way, bringing meaning out of it. Uh, because when you translate something again, you're also interpreting it. And so for me, it just, it seems like it's, it's another piece of the invite, the invitation into the conversation that's happening in scripture, which goes to your point about like, uh, using the Bible as like a jumping off point, moving beyond Paul or, or whatever. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I, I think it does. Yeah, for sure. But I, I think it's scary because what I grew up with was we have this thing that cannot be touched, right? Um, it's the static text that really came from God. Um, and that gives, again, this sense of certainty. It, it gives us this thing that we can go back to. But what we don't realize, at least I didn't, is we sacrifice our participation in it. We sacrifice mm-hmm. the dynamic nature of this thing. Um, we sacrifice a lot of things by having that view of the Bible that I think leads to things like excluding other people, um, not being open to advances in sciences and even in biblical studies. So mm-hmm. I think it is a challenge. Yeah, man. So to I'm going to kind of try, try to get us... Um, back on the right path. But before we do, since certainties come up so much, I feel like somebody should probably write a book about it, like how maybe certainty is a sin. Um, maybe I'll, I'll talk. I don't know. I don't have time. Maybe Pete would be up for that or something. <laughs> sure. You should let him know that it'd be a good idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the 
to to kind of get get us back on on uh, track here, I think it's interesting and it's it's kind of been an, an undercurrent, and we've already touched on it. Um, but there there seems to almost sometimes be this idea that um, it's like faith just means correct belief, like getting all the facts right, like you said earlier, um, which then trips me out because it it seems like we're most of the time people say you know salvation by faith alone or grace alone, whatever. But in a way, like in a cheeky way, it's almost like, okay, so it's salvation by correct belief alone. Is that, <laughs> is that what we're saying here? And so when we fall into that trap, um, there is a phrase that, that Christians use a lot um, called speaking truth in love. And a lot of the times when people speak truth in love, it, at least in my experience, it feels a lot like hate. Any, any, any thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this was the main impetus for the book was this phrase. And I heard it many, many times um, from people speaking the truth. And like, we, we feel like it's our duty as Christians, if, if the most important thing is that you believed these two or three facts about God in your head, that's the most important thing, because that's what determines whether you go to heaven or hell is, do you believe these handful of things? which now has, we've also now uh, gotten into the morality of it, right? So if I believe this about your behavior, if your behavior is wrong or right, then I go to heaven or not. Um, yeah, then, you know, we, we, and I try to be generous to people in the book to say, listen, I get it. I don't think anyone is ill-intentioned. I think people who are trying to tell the truth in love truly are trying to tell the truth in love, but they maybe don't recognize there's some prerequisites for that. And even Paul in Ephesians, when he talks about this, he is um, really, if you, if you read the context of what Paul's saying in chapter four, it's in this context of unity and you can't separate telling the truth in love from these other things he talks about, even in the same chapter, which would be being humble, being gentle, being patient, bearing each other's burdens. Like that's what a relationship is. And then when you do those things, you kind of earn the right to give people your opinion about their life choices or what they believe or don't believe. But without that, it becomes a weapon. Yeah. And so it, it, it seems like, again, this, then this points back to once again, is the idea of wisdom. Like you can, you can have your set of beliefs, but maybe what's more important is how you believe those things, not necessarily what you believe all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. So like, for example, um, my brother, uh, my younger brother, Jordan, uh, is gay. And when he came out uh, to my family, uh, luckily, you know, we don't have a story where like my family, you know, kicked him out or anything like that. My parents were awesome. Uh, but we were kicked out of our church, <laughs> mm-hmm. like literally. And so that, I mean, that example I know is extreme, but I always come back to that because there were people who genuinely believed that um, my parents were causing harm to my brother by accepting him for who he was mm-hmm. and that they were putting him at risk. Yeah. Then there were other Christians who like, you know, had their, their opinion, their belief, you know, they were, were not affirming, um, but they didn't, they didn't weaponize it. Mm-hmm. They, they were able to hold, hold their, that belief and still maintain relationship and friendship and um, love and kindness. Um, and then luckily also there are, are, affirming uh, Christians in our life, life as well. And that's been helpful for my brother. But I think um, that's yeah. a, a good example of, of how that might play out. 
Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And you know, that's, you know, I, I can't, I keep coming back to this now that I, if I had, if I had been able to talk through this as much as I have the last few weeks, <laughs> I would have, probably would have put this in the book, but I keep coming back to the Sermon on the Mount mm. and mm-hmm. Jesus, he starts with these beatitudes, which we know all, all, all about. And then he'd start talking about this. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and interestingly enough, which I think I did put in the book, but I didn't expound on it enough. There's this climactic section where at the end of that, you know, Jesus says to love our enemies. Mm-hmm. And not only do you love your enemies, but he actually tells us what that looks like and gives us the example or model in God and how God loves God's enemies. And the way God loves enemies is to be indiscriminate in the giving of gifts so that the sun rises on the just and the unjust, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so what Mm -hmm. that means for me is in your example, if I'm holding up God who gives gifts indiscriminately as the example for what it means to love our enemies, which is such a distinctive of the Christian faith, and what I think is uh, you know, core to what it means to be a Christian is that working toward or that ability to do that, then in your story, I could tell very obviously who the enemy is by the fact that the, the, the gifts were not indiscriminate, meaning if I were to have a video camera of my life, I shouldn't be able to tell who I disagree with about their choices, who I hate, who I like, who I do. None of that matters in how I live my life. It's indiscriminate. And so if I can tell the difference between the, the people that you agree with and the people you disagree with and how you behave toward them, then I think you have not yet done what Jesus says, which is to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that I remember that section. Um, and that's, that's was so good and so helpful. And especially to like, um, the idea of loving your enemies, I was challenged. Um, it, so I'm a part of this thing called Jesus collective, which is super cool. Everybody should check that out. Um, actually, Jared, I recommended your book to them because like it's straight <laughs> up in line with what Jesus collective is trying to do. Um, but, I, Oh my goodness. I lost my train of thought because I mentioned Jesus Collective. Way to go, Josh. Um, Yeah. Oh, oh, loving enemies. I was challenged uh, to actually take that seriously and pray for for enemies. And um, listeners know that I've had a rough past in the church. I worked at um, a a church that was uh, spiritually abusive, verbally abusive, emotionally abusive. Um, And so I, I go to therapy and things like that. But... I was challenged um, by a friend to actually pray for my enemy, which the head pastor and the founding pastor of that church. And I found what that does is when we, when we pray for enemies, it, it does something inside of us. It's more so for us selfishly than it is for them because it, one, it humanizes them, but then something happens in prayer. When, when you're praying for somebody, it's, it's kind of an intimate thing, but it, it breaks down that barrier of, this person is an enemy to this person. It helps you recognize this person is still a, you know, an image bearer. And so the the category of enemy can go away, uh, which I think is super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good. Um, Yeah. mm -hmm. Sweet. Well, all right. So within the, the lines of wisdom, um, you have a chapter and it, it has a pretty, a pretty bold, uh, a pretty bold claim. And so I think it's interesting if, uh, if we could chat about it. So the, the chapter title is, if it doesn't set you free, it's not true. So Jared, is what you're saying that we can just believe whatever we want if it makes us feel good? 
sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. No, that, no, no sarcasm. That's that's yeah. exactly what I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just about how you feel, and you know, if you feel good, do it, bro. You know, <laughs> no, it, you know, it's it's understanding. There's a two-sided way. It really, for me, and I did overstate it because I wanted it to be provocative. Yeah, I like it. Because I think we need to be jarred into understanding that we don't get to define what love is mm, mm-hmm. as the lover. It's a two-way street. It, it kind of depends on what my intentions and motives are, but it also depends on the impact. Mm-hmm. So I think love's meaning is found at that intersection between intention and impact. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think freedom is one of those core elements and ingredients to what we mean by love. Um, and so I think if, if we can recognize that, um, I think that's really important. But, but to get back to the title, it comes back to um, John, in John eight thirty two. Jesus says this thing, it says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that meant, okay, so if you know the right things, you'll feel free. You'll be free. You'll feel free. There's all this freedom in Christ. We sing all these songs about being free in Christ. And it never clicked for me. I thought like my ticker was broken or something. Like <laughs> sure. I, the equation's not adding up for me. I didn't feel free. I said it and I wanted to feel free. But if I was honest, I felt trapped. I tra- felt trapped by all the rules, all the things I was supposed to believe or not believe, by the subculture of the things you can say and not say and how you say them. And there was this, all of this stuff I felt trapped. I didn't feel free at all. Um, And so I thought I was broken, but if I could look at that phrase a little differently and say, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If that's true, if that's an accurate statement, then anything that sets me free um, is true. And if it doesn't set me free, it's not true because Mm -hmm. if it were true, it would set me free. That's kind of the equation, right? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if I'm not feeling free, it's probably not true. Um, and so now it, can that get messy? Yeah. Can people use it as a license and as a weapon? Yeah. But so can we, we've learned through telling the truth in love, love the sinner, not, you know, love the sinner, not the sin, hate the sin, all these cliches. We can weaponize just about anything. Um, we can go the wrong direction with just about anything. And I, I think there's worth, it's worth risking the idea of love is a better risk for me than risking, you know, I'm sure. Is it true that maybe I could be hurting someone by letting them live their life the way they want to live it and making their own choices? I guess so, um, but I'm going to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that's where it comes down to it for me is the whole point of that chapter is to say, listen, listen to the people you say you are loving. If they don't feel loved, then you're probably missing something. Yeah. Yeah. And it, again, it, that's just, it comes back to that, that word wisdom. It's, it's how you, you live these things out. And I think um, this is a connection that at least in my mind seems like it makes sense. I'd be interested to see what you think. Um, but I feel like a lot of the way uh, that Christianity um, is propagated today, or, or maybe more so has been propagated in the past um, with some very well-intentioned people um, is that the whole point of Christianity is getting into heaven when you die and avoiding hell when you die. And I think when we start with that foundation, then it, it, <laughs> it doesn't leave room for, for wisdom or anything like that. Because the point isn't to go to heaven when you die. And the point isn't to, 
you know, have after life fire insurance or whatever. Um, and once, once I started to, to realize, and that started to set in, um, it actually made me like want to be a better person, if that makes sense. And uh, that's, I know people throw around the word like deconstruction, reconstruction, things like that a lot. And so for me, my deconstruction actually started by reading N.T. Wright, <laughs> which I don't think too many people say that. Um, but I read Surprised by Hope. And when I read Surprised by Hope, that changed everything for me. And I think, so I think that connection is there. And then one more that I'll say, and then I'll shut up. Um, but again, I'd be interested to see what you think. I think another issue, and this is perhaps maybe the same way to phrase what I just said, is that we're so hooked on having Jesus as Savior, and we leave out the Lord bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you get Jesus as Lord, then Savior is a, a, you know, a gift, a part of the package. But if we only focus on Jesus as Savior, then things like discipleship or transformation won't happen because it becomes optional. Versus if Jesus is Lord, we should listen to what he says and, and follow in the ways of Jesus, which is this way of love. Right. And the only thing I would, I mean, there's a lot we could talk about there, but one yeah. <laughs> thing that came to mind that I think I find troublesome and hard okay. is the hypocrisy where we say what matters is that you go to heaven when you die. That's what matters. And the only thing you need to do really to do that is to say a prayer, right. say the sinner's prayer and have a few beliefs in your head. And yet I feel like Christians who hold that belief then go on to judge the culture for their morality or immorality and all the things they're doing wrong. They're very judgmental when it's like, if the whole point is just to say this prayer, why does any of this matter? <laughs> right. Like what, what's the, what, why does it matter? And so I think that's hard for me is, is the inconsistency of it. Either the life we live now matters or it doesn't matter. Now we have to choose one of those and there's lots of implications for which one of those we choose, but let's be consistent with it. And for me, I think I would agree, as you said, I, I actually read N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope as well. And it was actually pretty instrumental for me in, in rethinking some of these things. Awesome. Um, but that would have been uh, the, the big thing for me is like, oh, okay. So I agree. I think you're touching on something very fundamental that shifted in my head, which is it's not about what happens when we die. It's about how we live our lives. And that was, yeah, I think that did start a lot of new thinking for me um, away from this idea that beliefs in our head are what matter. For me, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. I only care about the beliefs in my head insofar as they compel me or motivate me to do things that are loving in my life. Mm-hmm. Without that, they're just mm-hmm. useless appendages. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it, it calls to mind too, at least for me, the, the idea of, of testing things by the fruit that they bear which is a very biblical way to speak. Um, and so if, if you have uh, all these, you know, correct beliefs and, and airtight systematic theology, all this kind of stuff, but it's not producing anything fruitful in your life, then does it matter? Even if all of those things are quote true, does it actually matter? And I think the answer is no. <laughs> well, it's interesting yeah. though, because I think there are certain systems, you know, and I, I think I tell the story in the book too, where it's a, it's a self-reinforcing narrative. So mm-hmm. the most important fruit is you read your Bible more. The most important fruit is you read more theology. So it's this, it's this uh, vicious cycle where how do you know you're producing fruit? Well, the fruit is the means by which you get the fruit. So it becomes <laughs> this thing over and over where but then we just silo ourselves and we, we get into this chamber uh, where we think 
yep, the more I read, the more spiritual I am. The more I know about Jesus, the more spiritual I am. And that becomes the fruit. And I think that's a danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then to it, it, I, it makes me sad then too, because then it, it cuts people short. Um, it, it's, a, it's a truncation of, of Jesus's whole message of the gospel. Um, mm-hmm. And so then it, it, it cuts people off from this transformative life, like a better way to be human, uh, right. so to speak. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, but anyway, man, well, this, uh, th- do you have any, any closing thoughts, anything um, else swirling around in your mind? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, well, the last thing I'll say is this. I don't, I don't pretend to be the expert on love. For me, this was a setting up of how do we, how do we start to pull apart our obsession with truth and start putting our attention and focus and energy toward love. So Mm. this isn't the, the last call on love. I think there's so much more conversation to be had. I think it's a messy topic. I don't at all pretend to be an expert on love. Um, but I think it's worth considering where we put our focus and our energy and our mind space. Is it on how to get things right or is it how to love our neighbor? And I would rather the conversation be about the latter. Yeah, no, most definitely, man. Um, and I, cause I think too, that the, the, the latter part is much more beautiful. Um, and it leads, it leads to a, a genuinely, it can lead to a better world. If people actually, mm-hmm lived a life of love um and actually like (laughs) actually did that which i know it's messy and difficult and it sounds so trite and cliche to say but if people actually did that it could transform the world like it it genuinely could um because you know if if uh when we think about like reconciliation and, and redemption the restoration of all things um and, and what that looks like if we can you know live in such a way that it brings forth those things that we believe whatever we mean by heaven uh whatever that would look like if it's peaceful if it's love if you know you know the poor are taking care of all this kind of stuff if we can start living that out now then the world would be a different place and it'll change um but if we only keep it up here in our heads then it it's not going to happen <laughs> so well, sweet right man on. this has been a, a a fun conversation again i i loved your book i uh, sat down and read it in like like two days just killed through it um, so I appreciate it I know it's going to help a lot of people um, this conversation has been a lot of fun uh, where though can people uh, go to find you if they would like to see more of Jared Bias yeah well you can order the book anywhere you can get a book or you can go to lovemattersmorebook.com my website's jaredbias.com, but you, if interaction is, is your thing, you can sign up for my newsletter there that I send out, but also um, anywhere on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And uh, we interact a lot with the Bible for Normal People, so you can just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com as well. Sweet, man. Well, that was awesome. Well, this has been great. And uh, listeners, uh, as always, this is how we like to close out the show. Uh, go Caps. <laughs> Peace and love, guys. Uh-huh.